a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be shoveling like my life depended on it today. Actually, now that I think about it, it kind of does. <laughs> At least, you know, making a living, this is this is how I do it. I'm shoveling truth and light your way. And I brought the big scoop shovel today, so I hope you're ready for this. By the way, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com as well as Pure-Light.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thanks for joining us today. You know, I haven't given my friend Carl a shout-out for a long time, and I'm going to confess something. Carl listens to this program knowing that eventually I'm going to give him a shout-out. So, Carl, here's your shout-out. Now, unlike other times, I've waited until the very end, like the very last segment, the last 30 seconds. Oh, by the way, hi, Carl. So I'm doing this up front. Carl, now you can get on with your day. Carl is one of my five listeners. I don't know the names of the other four, but anyway, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're part of the audience today. Let's dive right in. So when it comes to critical race theory, you know, I, I consider myself uh, not jaded, but calloused. No, that's not it. I'm just, I'm pretty seasoned when it comes to, you know, the... The, the latest outrage of the day and, and, and political correctness, because I've been following it for a long time. I mean, at least the last 25 years. I've been very aware of all the various things that we're supposed to be outraged about. And you can't say that anymore, but, you know, it was okay two weeks ago. But I have to admit, I'm shocked. I'm, like, stunned at how quickly critical race theory has become a flashpoint. And I mean, especially within the uh, public school or government education setting. This is astonishing to me. I'm seeing stories from, you know, all over the country. Now, I would expect this in major population centers. I would think, okay, this is where you're going to probably have, you know, more, more progressives or more people who want to push this agenda or that agenda where there's a captive audience. And I'm not trying to impute, you know, that they're all evil for this. I'm just saying, when you've got kids in a classroom, that's a that's a pretty solid audience. They have to listen to what's being taught. If you can interject whatever the the moral or social imperative of the day is into their curriculum, you know, you're going to be putting ideas into society. It may take a few years to bring them to fruition, but there you have it. But I'm astonished at how this is spreading even to, to rural areas, to smaller school districts. And, and I have to wonder, how did all of these inroads take place where critical race theory now is, is such an imperative? You know, the funny thing about it is, as, as I shared in uh, Carrie, McDonald's, la, Carrie McDonald's article last week, you're seeing parents standing up to school boards now and getting arrested for confronting the school boards. And I'll grant you, some people come and they're very passionate and they are angry and maybe they're raising their voice and they're yelling and, you know, telling them this is, this is not acceptable. But, oh, wow, we have, a, we have a challenge in front of us. I only have two kids that are still school age. 
So, you know, my, my wife and I, we spend a lot of time talking with our kids. I don't, you know, I'm not going to say I've programmed my kids to be resistant to politically correct nonsense. I mean, I've, I've tried to encourage them to think independently, to question what they're being told, and to recognize when they're being manipulated. I'm not saying my kids have to agree with me, so don't get me wrong. I, I, I wouldn't insi- I don't insist that anybody agree with me, but especially my kids. But I do make them aware of things like, did you know it's easier to manipulate groups than it is to manipulate individuals? And if you've ever had to sit through a mandatory, you know, sensitivity training, you know, from HR or anything like that, you probably have a good understanding of how this works. What most people don't recognize, though, that is classic communist crowd control techniques. Someone comes in as a facilitator. That's the the nice word for them, the facilitator, who's there to make sure that we all, excuse me, end up on the same page, but they are there to engineer the arrival of everybody on the same page. And so whatever it is, whatever the sensitivity is that they're teaching today, we're going to be talking about gender issues. The first thing they're going to be looking for is who is resistant to this. In other words, who is not enthusiastically on board and marching in lockstep? And they won't come right out and ask, you know, okay, so who's vehemently opposed to what we're talking about? It starts with questions, and they'll just look for someone who looks uneasy or who seems unwilling to, I don't know, chant in unison with everybody else. And then the facilitator's job is to turn the rest of the the crowd against that person using words like consensus. Well, can't you see we've come to a consensus here? Everyone else is on board, and the pressure is slowly ramped up to bring the wayward individual into compliance. I know there are those of you within the sound of my voice who've who've actually seen this happen firsthand. And it's quite an amazing thing. I mean, it sucks, but it's still kind of an amazing thing. It really works. Manipulating crowds is always going to be easier than manipulating individuals. And this is why I'm such a stickler for, as an individual, you have to own your worldview. You have to be willing to put your foot down and say, I'm not going to go there or I will not embrace this. If, if it doesn't jive with what my conscience can accept or what my standards will accept or what my moral compass is steering me toward. But it isn't getting easier. <clears throat> so what can we do? What's the best way to fight critical race theory? And I don't even, I don't even know how to define critical race theory other than it, uh, it injects race into everything, every, every possible social situation, every familial situation. Everything around us is viewed through a prism of how is this involved with race. And I'm trying to be kind when I say this because I think there are people who are genuinely concerned, Bob, but some people have had a tough time. And I'll grant you, I know that I know some people have. I don't think it's helpful, though, to obsess over race. In fact, the most racist people I know, the ones who who tend to group people and make judgments and put them all into, into the same little category, they all have one thing in common. That is, they cannot break their focus on race. It's just, it's what they do. I want to share a little commentary here from Tom Cranowitter. This was shared yesterday on Facebook, and it's so, so good. 
because he describes the, the kind of indoctrination that our kids are getting in school. He says, a kid goes off to school. He becomes more liberal, which means he becomes more tribal. He no longer sees individual human beings or individual citizens. He sees groups. He thinks in terms of groups. He demands that laws and government programs offer different things to different groups. He proudly proclaims to be for gay rights and women's rights and black rights and the rights of the poor. He assumes the solution to tribalism must be more tribalism. And so he waves his rainbow flag and puts a BLM sign in his yard. He boasts that he believes in the science, knowing little about actual or the often ugly history of science. He does not understand that modern technological science is all about means, not ends, and that means can be used for unjust purposes just as easily as the opposite. He denounces as fascist and hater anyone who points out problems with radical Islam, entitlements, subsidies, regulations, affirmative action, or kids who go to school become, or become more liberal and then start thinking and acting tribally. In fact, Tom Cranowitter says that he does not know what fascism means or its inseparable connection to his own political cause bothers him not one whit. He thinks you must be crazy if you show him the common ideological foundation of fascism and his own politics. He despises people who are judgmental. While he has become the greatest of moralizers, he does not pause when condemning, denouncing, and judging harshly all who appear to hold opinions different from his. Though he's never taken a class in moral philosophy because he doesn't know they exist. His soul becomes the soul of a thief. He covets what has been produced and earned and belongs to others. He thinks he knows better how other people should spend their own money to, to the point he takes that he votes for politicians and policies rather that take that money from others in the form of taxes and those in government whom he supports spend it for them. He comes to view victimhood, cowardice, compliance and dependency as virtues worthy of praise. And he scoffs at independence, productivity, self-reliance and individual responsibility. And millions of Americans call that progress or enlightenment or being woke. Tom Cranowitter says they actually believe this kind of transformation, transformation rather, is the proper purpose of education. When we come back, we're going to talk about what you can do about critical race theory. Robbie Suave from Reason says you can't ban it, but there are some things you can and should do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Okay, so I, I have to say again, as, as I start into this uh, discussion of critical race theory, my goal is not to make you angry or fearful. Now, that doesn't mean that I may not accidentally do this in the course of, you know, going over a certain topic on a certain day. I get a little bit impassioned. and So if, if I seem to go off on a rant, please forgive me. Point it out to me, Brian, you were off on a tirade again today. That's never my goal, but sometimes I still do it. So I'll apologize in advance if I'm stirring your passions here. But I, I really liked the article from Robbie Suave from uh, Reason Magazine. Critical race theory can't be banned. It can be exposed, mocked, and avoided. 
And I like his take on this. Robbie Suave says, alarm about critical race theory, a previously obscure field of study pioneered by far left legal scholars and sociologists has suddenly gripped the political right. This development has forced the right's adversaries on Team Blue to defend a theory that very few people on either side of this increasingly silly debate could accurately define if challenged to do so. At least Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley was honest. Last week, under intense grilling by House Republicans, he concluded that he would have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Nevertheless, he thought there was certainly a place for it in university classrooms. After all, students of history study communism and fascism, not because they were good ideas, but because it's important to learn why they failed. Milley said the United States Military Academy is a university. It's important that we train and understand. I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. Now, in response, conservative writer J.D. Vance quipped, U.S. generals should read less about white rage and more about not losing wars. Now, it's a trollish response that captures so much of what's wrong with the current public meltdown about critical race theory, or CRT. Practically no one agrees on or even appears to understand what CRT is and how far it is spread. So, Robbie Suave says, let's just get this out of the way. Critical race theory is the idea that structural racism is embedded in many U.S. institutions. Slavery was the reality when the country was founded, and segregation endured for a century following the Civil War. It would thus be naive to assume that supposedly race-neutral policies are actually race-neutral. There's nothing neutral about America and race, he says. Working from this assumption, adherents of critical race theory tend toward a kind of progressive activism that views post-Enlightenment classical liberalism and its notions of equal opportunity, the prioritization of individual rights over groups, and colorblindness with hostility. Now, since very few people involved in the CRT debate have had much experience with the above definition, nearly everybody who's waded into this controversy is right about some things and wrong about many other things. Savvier liberals are correct, for instance, that CRT, as defined by people who actually coined the term, mostly exists in academia, not in K-12 classrooms. This means that Republican legislative efforts to protect kids from CRT are actually targeting a wide swath of only semi-related progressive concepts. These bills are almost uniformly heavy-handed and in some cases represent active threats to freedom of expression in the classroom. Pennsylvania's anti-CRT bill, for instance, would prohibit university professors from teaching any racist or sexist concept or bringing an outside speaker to campus who does the same. Remember when conservatives were outraged about the disinvitation campaigns waged against campus speakers like Ben Shapiro and Milo Yiannopoulos? Well, this bill would make disinvitation the law of the land. University bureaucrats would have to scroll through prospective speakers' Twitter feeds on the hunt for statements that could be read as racist or sexist. And Suave says this obviously would not benefit socially conservative speakers, many of whom do, after all, believe that there are differences between men and women and different roles for them in society. Now, he says at the same time, Anti-CRT folks on the right are correct that there are a whole host of progressive writers, teachers, and activists who were clearly inspired by critical race theory, a field that does, in fact, include some fairly radical ideas. 
some of which run contrary to the colorblind liberalism of previous racial equality advocacy. Now, whether or not these people would admit to being adherents of CRT, that's almost beside the point. Included in this mix are two of the least persuasive anti-racism writers, White Fragility author Robin D'Angelo and How to Be Anti-Racist author Ibram X. Kendi, who are routinely paid thousands of dollars to give short presentations to corporate employees, school administrators, and teachers. Both take widely or wildly flawed approaches. D'Angelo treats racism as a kind of incurable infection or original sin, John McWhorter accurately accused her of promoting the cultic notion that you will never succeed in the work she demands of you. It is lifelong, and you will die a racist just as you will die a sinner. Candy's big idea is to create a U.S. Department of Anti-Racism. Oh, boy. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity. Monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces, and monitor public officials, officials rather, for expressions of racist ideas. Now, this proposal would necessitate the creation of a vast surveillance state and render the First Amendment moot. So, Robbie Suave says, now that critical race theory is under attack, Kendi has denied being an adherent of it, saying in a statement, I don't identify as a critical race theorist. <laughs> How convenient. MSNBC host Joy Reid used this as a gotcha moment during a segment with Christopher Rufo, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the foremost anti-CRT activist. But this is semantics. Kendi also told Slate that CRT was foundational to his work. Quote, I've certainly been inspired by my critical race theory and critical race theorists. The way in which I have formulated definitions of racism and racist and anti-racism and anti-racist have not only been based on historical sorts of evidence, but also Kimberly Crenshaw intersectional theory, which is she's one of the founding and pioneering critical race theorists who in the late 1980s and early 1990s said, you know what? Black women aren't just facing racism. They're not just facing sexism. They're facing the intersection of racism and sexism. And it's important for us to understand that. And that's foundational to my work. End quote. Now, Suave says the Department of Anti-Racism is not an idea that comes to us explicitly from critical race theory literature. But the man who proposed it views CRT as inexorably tied with his anti-racism work. So it's not entirely unfair for conservatives to use CRT as shorthand for the sorts of things to which they object. The person most responsible for this framing, CRT as the avatar of all dubious race and diversity stuff, is undoubtedly Rufo, whose unmatched zeal for exposing it occasionally makes him sound like the sort of activist he's otherwise criticizing. He tweeted, for instance, quote, The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We've decodified the term and we'll recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. This is a fairly straightforward admission that he's not really against CRT. His project is raising the salience of CRT so people will identify the concept with every other thing they don't like. Now, this is a project that makes hypocrites out of everyone. Conservatives often take umbrage when progressives redefine words. Progressives counter that language has no fixed meaning. But as Oliver Trowdy points out in ARC Digital, the critical race theory debate has scrambled these usual sides. Now it's the right saying that a highly specific word can serve as a stand-in for all sorts of broader ideas, 
And the left is saying, no, the right can't do that. Only some kind of critical race theory priesthood is qualified to give opinions on what is or isn't critical race theory. This is really a great article, and it is going to be included in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for July 1st, 2021. We'll come back to this in just a few moments, the other side of our break. I don't know where you stand, and I'm not trying to push you to stand one place or another, but I'm I'm thinking that uh, the loud arguing may not be having as much effect as we think it should. Maybe there are better ways to address this. We'll explore that when we return. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, I'm sharing with you this article from Robbie Suave from Reason.com about critical race theory. And, you know, banning it, censoring it, I don't think is is the right approach. And I, I'm sorry, this is going to put me at odds with a lot of my, my good conservative Republican friends who are like, no, 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 we need to, we need to ban this in the schools. I'm thinking, uh, you know, if, if you want to address this, I, I like Kerry McDonald's approach, and that is if it's that big of a problem, maybe you should consider either pulling your kids out of the schools or be pushing for greater school choice because the problem, this is a symptom of the bigger problem, which is your kid is a captive audience. And if someone comes along with some crackpot theory that they want to, you know, indoctrinate the students with, You know, it would be nice if you had an option to take your kids somewhere else or to enroll them somewhere else. Back to Robbie Suave's uh, article. He says, instead of arguing over the things they're calling critical race theory, uh, what, what critical race theory ought to be called, people should argue about whether the things they are calling critical race theory are good or bad. Now, on this front... He says many of the critics of these things make sound arguments. For instance, it's true that the aspects of white supremacy charts concocted by progressive anti-racism writers Judith Katz and Tema Oken, which posit that punctuality, individualism, and belief in objectivity are traits associated with whiteness, are junk. Punctuality and whiteness have nothing to do with each other. People who strongly cling to the idea that there is such a thing as whiteness and that it has to do with punctuality, objectivity, and hard work are actually promoting harmful and inaccurate racial stereotypes. But he says this kind of thinking clearly undergirds the modern anti-racist approach to diversity and inclusion training. Here's an example of a Columbia University professor and diversity instructor informing K-12 educators that black students struggle with dissecting and analyzing things because Afrocentric epistemology is more context-driven than white epistemology. This is why education is not working for so many students of color, says the expert. By the way, there is a link to that uh, video in the, the article. This is why I include it in the show notes and encourage you to uh, follow the, the threads yourself. Suave also says, recall as well the psychiatrist who delivered a lecture at Yale University's Child Study Center titled The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind. The journalist Katie Herzog interviewed the psychiatrist Aruna Kilanini. Let me try that again. Kilanani. 
for Barry Weiss's newsletter, and I'm really sorry for butchering her name there. It was relevatory. Kilanani is possessed of one of the oddest notions I've ever encountered in my 10 years of critiquing progressive activist tactics and beliefs, says Suave. She thinks white people refuse to eat bread because they're guilty about their racism and they want to starve themselves. Okay. Suffice it to say that these are some very weird and unsupported ideas. Are they mandated by critical race theory? No. Do they exist within an increasingly popular strain of diversity and anti-racism advocacy and training, training that takes place in schools of education, corporate HR departments, and will increasingly trickle down into the K-12 through school system? Yes. And if that's what parents are pushing back against when they show up to school board meetings and demand that CRT be banned from the classroom, well, he says it's hard to blame them. But none of that means the legislative remedy is the correct one. Jeffrey Sachs notes that many of the anti-CRT bills are clumsily worded, subject to interpretation, and would likely lead to much self-censorship among teachers and students. And again, the problem is not really that CRT is being taught in K-12 classrooms. The problem is that semi-related concepts have made their way into the kind of instruction that K-12 educators are themselves receiving, either in education schools or during diversity seminars. That's a tough issue for legislatures to overcome. So the solution is twofold. First, he says, foes of critical race theory should spend their time more productively by working to ban racial discrimination in schools. Tinkering with the curriculum, that's usually a local issue. But states can prohibit race-based hiring and admission systems. Bar elite public high schools from requiring white and Asian students to score higher on entrance exams and from segregating students by race. David French has also corrected that civil rights law already provides a potential avenue for students to sue school districts that have fostered a racially hostile and discriminatory climate. If the thinking behind aspects of white supremacy culture is put into practice in these schools, well, those schools can be sued. Second, he says J.D. Tussiel's uh, completely correct that the race, critical race theory debate wouldn't matter if we had more school choice. Families deserve more control over their children's education. And Robbie Suave says the best way to give it to them is to let students attend whatever school best fits their needs. If parents are concerned that a district is regularly training its teachers to espouse a white fragility, D'Angelo-esque worldview, the easiest solution is to empower the kids to go elsewhere. Now, I have another suggestion here. I think I offered this the other day on the show, but... um, Look, your kids are going to spend an awful lot of time in school. If you have them enrolled in public school, this is going to be a real issue. But I'm going to ask you to consider what are you doing in those non-school hours when you are with them at home? And I understand there's a lot of things. Look, I can't tell you how many times I look around when the family is gathered and everybody's looking at a screen. Everybody's got their phone in their hand, and they're just, you know, quietly in their own world. That is a reality of the world that we're in right now. But can anyone doubt that it would have serious, measurable impact on the lives and minds of these young children if you were to sit down and read with them? Read books like Little Britches. Read Shakespeare, for that matter. You know, it's okay to reach for things that are over your head. The Tuttle Twins. Good heavens, my friend Connor Boyack has has created an absolute godsend 
of a resource for parents and, you know, young people who want to get their mind around the ways that the world works based on classic works of free market and and libertarian literature. This is just it's it's a brilliant way to to help people grasp those ideas and carry them forward. And I like Connor's approach in that uh, you start teaching people at a young age correct economic principles, teaching them about uh, the value of private property, the value of personal liberty, the value of free markets. Yeah, that's that's a problem you aren't going to have to correct down the road. Because one of our biggest challenges right now is a lot of people, and I'm including myself in this, we were trained to believe a certain way, and we have to unlearn the various mistakes that were programmed into us when we were younger. Better to catch it uh, at, the, at the front end of our lives and, and uh, you know, not have so many mistakes to, to correct. These kids who read the Tuttle Twins, I promise you, they and the people who are reading them with, with the kids are going to be fortified against a lot of different kinds of nonsense. And it doesn't require confrontation. Nowhere does it say, and then you go to the public meeting and you yell and you shout and you get their attention and make sure your voice is heard. It's more about, I will go my own way or I will chart my own path. And there may be some help along the way from various public institutions. Perhaps public school is one of them. But ultimately, who has responsibility for what I will choose to think? See, and that's the key. It's got to be you. When we come back from the break here in a moment, I want to share with you a new essay from Barry Brownstein. I always look forward to when when Barry has published something new because he has a really great take on on things. Um, I I think he also has a great appreciation for life, which I appreciate when I see his posts on social media. He's been out hiking and, and he's showing some of the beautiful scenery there in the northeast where he lives. But his take on censorship is one of the best things I have read in a long time. And I'm going to to preface this with the understanding that censorship is not just, well, you know, sometimes people have to make decisions for us what, uh, you know, what we should see, what we should hear, what we should read. No, it's, it's actually even simpler than that. And I have to tip my hat to my dear old departed friend, Jim Lorenz, who uh, first taught me censorship comes down to this. Either you decide for yourself what ideas you will or will not entertain, or someone else does it for you. That's it. I mean, I understand that's kind of absolutist in, in the approach, but I think it's absolutely true as well. You're either pregnant or you're not. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't have a little bit of censorship, and it's a good thing. Either you are making that decision, I will or I will not entertain this idea, or somebody else is making it for you. Now, in some things, it can be easier than others, right? You know, if you want to sit there and watch, you know, snuff porn or something like that, that's, uh, you, you, you should be making, you know, the right decision there, but, uh, but I don't think that, uh, that people should be stepping in and making it for you. Here's the part that gets me. When it comes to COVID, we have seen an incredible amount of censorship taking place. And this is what Barry Brownstein addresses. He talks about how censorship kills because it prevents us from accessing information that might have had life-saving meaning. We'll be back right after these messages. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm going to ask you, please consider going to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I want you to be able to follow up on the articles that I'm sharing with you, as well as I'd like you to subscribe to the podcast. There's a handy button. You'll know every time a new episode drops. And there's also an opportunity for you to support programs like this one, but specifically to support this one through becoming a patron. That is a monthly donor. I'm not asking for much. You know, you consider what, what it's worth to you. If this show is providing value, if it's providing understanding or insight, I would ask you, please consider donating a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, and, and supporting this program so that I can continue to focus on this and not have to, you know, get a job selling brushes door to door in order to make ends meet. I'm willing to do it, mind you, but... This is where my heart is. This is where I feel like my time and talents are best spent. And so everybody who helps me in that regard, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Barry Brownstein has a new article. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. Censorship kills. And he says, whenever I write an essay critical of expert opinion on COVID, I immediately receive indignant replies. Some assume I must be a bleach drinking supporter of President Trump. Others label me a dangerous libertarian, since in their view, I challenge the best source of public opinion, or expert opinion, rather. He says, among my critics are well-meaning people who see no alternative but to follow the policy prescriptions of their favorite experts. They do not see they are on the path of illiberal, anti-science, authoritarian thinking that's endangering the well-being of so many people today. Karl Popper helps us to understand why an authoritarian attitude to the problem of human knowledge hinders scientific progress. His essay on the so-called sources of knowledge appears in his collection In Search of a Better World. Popper explains, quote, The question of the sources of our knowledge, like so many authoritarian questions, is a question about origin. It asks for the origin of our knowledge in the belief that knowledge may be legitimate itself by its pedigree. Popper explains how the mistaken belief that knowledge has a pedigree leads us to to seek the best or wisest to be our political rulers. We make the mistake of assuming they are ultimate or there are ultimate authorities rather best suited to rule because of the knowledge they possess. Popper explains that there are no such ultimate authorities and uncertainty clings to all assertions. Popper argues that instead of focusing on who should rule, our focus should be on how can we organize our political institutions so that bad or incompetent rulers can do the minimum amount of damage. Since ideal and infallible source of the knowledge is as impossible as ideal and infallible rulers, Popper proposed a better question. Is there a way of detecting and eliminating error? Now, Barry Brownstein points out here, Dr. Fauci claims that to criticize him is to criticize science. Popper would challenge this authoritarian assertion since pure, untainted, and certain sources do not exist. To detect error, Popper advises a mindset of inquiry that criticizes the theories and conjectures of others. Importantly, Popper suggests training ourselves to criticize our own theories and speculative attempts to solve problems. 
Now, here Barry Brownstein points out, of course, human beings don't do very well criticizing themselves. Popper says that in a free society, that won't be an issue because there will be others who will do it for us. What happens when we don't criticize our theories? What happens when others are prohibited from criticizing our theories? Well, without critical inquiry, errors compound since there are no ultimate sources of knowledge. Humility to acknowledge our ignorance motivates inquiry. Here's another quote from Popper. The more we learn about the world and the deeper our learning, the more conscious, clear, and well-defined will be our knowledge of what we do not know, our knowledge of our ignorance. The main source of our ignorance lies in the fact that our knowledge can only be finite, while our ignorance must necessarily be infinite. End quote. Authentic scientific inquiry is impossible when criticism is prohibited. Now, from here... Barry talks about uh, COVID censorship. And if you've been paying attention over the last year and a half, this is something that has become a real problem. He says, evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein is a modern-day popper. Weinstein came first to prominence in 2017 when he was a professor at Evergreen State, Evergreen, Evergreen State College in Washington State. A progressive supporter of Bernie Sanders, Weinstein became an early victim of cancel culture when he refused to support a campus event requiring white people to stay off campus. Evergreen State's college president, George Bridges, declined to protect Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hang, then a biology professor at Evergreen from a campus mob. Run out of Evergreen State, Weinstein and Hang now produce the YouTube podcast Dark Horse and depend in part on advertising revenue for their livelihood. As the audience of Dark Horse has grown, they have become independent media stars. So today, big tech is after Weinstein and Haying. Prominent free speech advocate Matt Taibbi writes, Weinstein is on the edge of becoming one of the more prominent casualties in a censorship to a censorship movement that it's hard not to see as part of a wider evergreening of America. Now, Barry Brownstein asks, why are Weinstein and, and Haying so dangerous to the orthodoxy. Well, throughout the COVID crisis, they've considered alternative views. They were among the first to consider the hypothesis that the virus was manufactured. They've considered ivermectin treatments. Now they're considering evidence that COVID vaccines are more dangerous than political authorities, the media, and their anointed experts are portraying. Importantly, they've not hesitated to question the integrity of officials such as Dr. Fauci. Consider Weinstein's uh, Popperian assertion that a movement opposes science when it doesn't want assertions tested, challenges arithmetics when its claims don't add up, ridicules merit when it wants triumph by other means, seeks to censor when it fears discussion. Weinstein adds, those who coddle such demands sow the seeds of our undoing. Censorship means risking economies, our economies and our lives. To reject scientific inquiry, Weinstein argues, is effectively an invitation to a dark age, which means an age where progress comes to a halt. We must at all costs prevent this shift in our mindset. Now, this probably won't surprise you, but recently YouTube removed a Dark Horse podcast panel discussion featuring Dr. Robert Malone. By the way, that podcast is now viewable at Odyssey. He has a link to it here in the note, uh, which runs on a blockchain file sharing decentralized platform. Now, Malone is the creator of the mRNA technology used in COVID vaccines. And Malone warns the spike proteins may be responsible for various unpredictable side effects, including blood clots and myocarditis. 
the latter being especially prevalent in children and young adults for whom the risk from COVID is very low. Exhibiting Popperian humility, the panelists allowed their conjectures might not be entirely accurate. Malone and Weinstein have earned this right not to be obeyed, but to present their ideas without censorship. Now, if there is evidence that the spike protein mechanism was not fully understood, to believe in science would mean that you examine the warnings of eminent physicians and scientists. Barry Brownstein says one doesn't have to deny the benefits of the vaccine. And Weinstein does, uh, does argue that the vaccine has saved lives. To realize the costs and benefits of any medical intervention can only be assessed accurately with uncensored information. Appearing on Tucker Carlson, Malone said of the vaccine's risks, we don't have the information we need to make a reasonable decision. In fact, Malone put it this way. One of my concerns is that the government is not being transparent with us. I'm of the opinion that the people have the right to decide whether to accept vaccines or not, especially since these are experimental vaccines. This is a fundamental right having to do with clinical research ethics. End quote. Now, Dr. Joseph Ladapo and Dr. Harvey Risch are medical professors at UCLA and Yale. They, too, are concerned that vaccine side effects are not being fully explored. Evidence points to risk of low platelets, non-infectious myocarditis, or heart inflammation, especially for those under 30, deep vein thrombosis, and death. And this failure to examine risk is being fueled by a strategy of ridiculing those who question the COVID orthodoxy. They write, one remarkable aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic has been how often unpopular scientific ideas from the lab leak theory to the efficacy of masks were originally dis- or initially dismissed, even ridiculed, only to resurface later in mainstream thinking. Differences of opinion have sometimes been rooted in disagreement over the underlying science, but the more common motivation has been political. Now, there is much more to this article. I will not have time to, uh, to cover all of it in this episode. But suffice it to say, Barry Brownstein sums it up by saying censorship distorts decision-making and destroys hope. For some, COVID is a matter of life or death. Censorship challenges our ability to make responsible health choices for ourselves and those in our care. So even though you may consider yourself a a disinterested bystander, you have a dog in this fight. And this may be the time to speak out before this kind of censorship really gains a hold. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. You know, we're not out to cause any trouble. Although, to hear some people tell it, we may be among the most dangerous people on the planet. Not because we're out there harming other people or defrauding them, 
but simply because we choose to own our own worldview and refuse to be manipulated insofar as is possible. And that's a good thing. Never have, never feel like you have to apologize for, for holding your own ideas. I don't know why it took so long for me to, to understand this, but man, what a happy day it was when I finally realized it's okay if I disagree with somebody. Even if we strongly disagree on certain issues, as long as I'm not willing to try to invoke some kind of coercion or official force to make another person toe the line for what I know to be best for them, we're probably going to be okay. We'll be able to work it out. It's when coercion comes into play, that's when things start to get ugly, and that's where we find ourselves today. So... Let's uh, let's jump right in. Uh, let's talk about the marketplace of ideas. I think that uh, this this is one of the many shops in the marketplace of ideas. You have a lot of different voices you could be listening to, but I'm glad you're at least giving this a chance. And and I have to admit, you know, it's it, it doesn't hurt my pride at all to say the stuff that I share on this program, the points of view that I espouse myself, they're not for everybody. Some people just don't want it. They don't need it. And that doesn't hurt my feelings. You know, it's, I mean, I I don't want to sound cavalier, but, you know, if that's the case, they're just not my people. And that's okay. Because their people are out there. You know, go find, be with the people that, that you need to be with. But I'm fairly certain that there are also people who desperately need the principles, the practices, the ideals that are espoused on this program. And, and I'm not taking credit for it. It's not like, yeah, they're my ideals. They're not. I'm not the one who discovered them. I'm not the one who clarified them. I just happen to believe in them and believe that they are worth perpetuating. And I'm glad that you're one of those people who is, you know, looking. And, and if this is what you're looking for, great. Welcome. You are among friends. <laughs> if not, that's okay. May you find, you know, success in your journey, if, even if it's not here. So in the marketplace of ideas, it's clear that we're not always dealing with a free market. In fact, when ideas become subsidized by the state, it actually has kind of a negative impact on the ability to freely share ideas with one another. I have a great article here from Michael Rechtenweld. This is from the uh, Mises.org website. And it's titled, The Tyranny of the Minority is Just as Dangerous as the Tyranny of the Majority. Now, Michael Rechtenweld says in a previous installment, a previous article of his, he pointed out that in On Liberty, John Stuart Mill advocated for minority opinion to be especially encouraged and countenanced. And he says thus, that Mill was not an absolute free market thinker where opinion is concerned. Mill suggested that minority opinion should not only be tolerated, but requires special encouragement in order to gain a fair hearing. Such special encouragement would amount to the subsidization of opinion, most likely by the state. So, however admirable, you know, John Stuart Mill may be, he was not arguing for necessarily a free and fair marketplace of ideas. Now, Michael Rechtenwell says it should be noted here that the marketplace of ideas is not only an analogy where commodities are to markets, what our ideas are to the public square. The public square is also market in its own right and not only metaphorically associated with the market. The expression, the marketplace of ideas, somewhat obscures rather than clarifying the situation of opinion. 
Further, he says, I argued that Mill's advocacy for special treatment of minority opinion does not solve the problem of social tyranny, which Mill suggested is more formidable than many kinds of political oppression. Rather, when minority opinion is foisted on the majority through special sanctions or subsidies, social tyranny is actually increased rather than diminished. To the extent that a majority is unwillingly subjected to minority opinion, the majority is tyrannized. Did you ever think about that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm thinking. You know, in some of the discussions on critical race theory, or or some of the some of the uh, the moral imperatives, the social imperatives that come along. Yeah, it seems like the majority is pretty much told, you will shut up and go along with this. And it's tyranny, even if it's happening to the majority. He says, this argument begs the question, what about the opinion of minorities? After all, the mere mention of minority opinion invokes minorities themselves. Don't the opinions of minorities require special encouragement, special sanctions, especially when said opinions have to do with fair and equal treatment of minorities themselves? Doesn't a free market in opinion or an unfettered marketplace of ideas, drown out or otherwise suppress the opinions of minorities. Wouldn't a free market in opinion thus serve to perpetuate discrimination, lack of recognition, or unfair treatment? And he asks, isn't the state required to rectify the situation through special subsidies for opinion? Leaving the non-remunerated voicing of opinion aside, that is, opinion expressed casually or even in public demonstrations, the question becomes whether in the actual marketplace of ideas, state subsidies are necessary for the opinions of minorities to get a fair, a fair hearing. Now, the question implies that state actors are specially qualified or motivated to subsidize minority opinion in order to rectify the unfair treatment of minorities. That the state is the most qualified entity for intervening in opinion to favor minorities. But he says it's easily demonstrated that the market provides more incentives to advocate for the fair treatment of minorities than does the state. Markets encourage legal equality among buyers and sellers. The state, meanwhile, has no monopoly on equal treatment, to say the least. Quite to the contrary, states have more incentives to discriminate against particular groups, as state prerogatives often depend on discrimination. For instance, consider the treatment of uh, the Japanese and Germans in America during World War II, or the treatment of Middle Easterners after 9-11. By the way, he says, notice how discrimination against Middle Easterners morphed into consternation about Islamophobia when the prerogatives of the state shifted from the war on terror under George W. Bush to the incorporation of Islamic immigrants into the electorate under Barack Obama. Thus, we should be quite skeptical when states impose the opinion of minorities on the majority through special programs in schools and elsewhere. Such programs likely involve positive discrimination against particular groups, consistent with state objectives. In fact, he says, discrimination is precisely what is involved in the teaching of critical race theory in schools, the military, the intelligence agencies, and other government agencies today. Critical race theory is a minority opinion that even most blacks do not agree with. It's being foisted on the majority to establish discrimination against whites in order to destroy a political contingent deemed inimical to the Democrat Party-run state. It is a means for marginalizing oppositional elements and driving others into the voting ranks of the Democratic Party by means of ideology. 
The state imposition of minority opinion does not serve minorities, says Michael Rechtenweld. That's an interesting take, right? Look, I... I can't emphasize strongly enough how important it is that we wean ourselves from the idea that, well, there's a problem. Uh, We better get government involved to solve this. Every time you advocate for government involvement in solving a problem, you are inviting a man with a gun to come sit down at the table. Now, that sounds like, oh, that's kind kind of a hyperbolic thing to say. But you have to remember, every official policy, every law, Every statute, every regulation is backed by some enforcement mechanism. And when it comes to the state, force is what the state uses. How does it project that force? Well, funny you would ask. Men with guns and badges go out there and enforce it. Even if it's just some functionary with a clipboard, if you're not doing what that functionary says, at some point, men with guns and badges will come and the force will begin. So the better solution, at least to my thinking, is we would solve problems at the lowest possible level, ask ourselves, first and foremost, is this a proper function for government? Is this something government should be involved in in the first place? And if the answer is no, then the answer is no. Let's find other ways to solve it. Look, we're very creative people. We are incredibly resourceful and innovative. But when we depend on bureaucrats to tell us what's right, tell us what's true... How can we solve this? Oh, please, please grant us more blessings. Somehow it always turns out that, sure, sure, we'll solve your problem, but it comes at the cost of more control and less freedom. That, to me, doesn't seem like a fair trade-off. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by MonticelloCollege.org, also by Pure-Light.com, HSL Ammo, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I have thoughtfully provided links in my show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can uh, drop a note to any of these sponsors if you want to do business with them or just to tell them that their message reached you. I've been feeling kind of nostalgic lately, and, and it's, you know, maybe it's because I'm getting older, maybe it's, you know, watching the grandkids and whatnot, but what really makes me nostalgic is the recognition that there was a time when we could laugh at ourselves. There was a time when we could be a little bit irreverent, and nobody considered that as, well, that is the worst thing ever. You are literally Hitler and must be canceled. What brought this up was my son was telling me, hey, I was looking at the $5 movie bin at Walmart the other day, and they had a copy of Blazing Saddles. And I was inclined to tell him, you should have grabbed it. Now look, it's, a, it's an R-rated movie with a lot of bad language and uh, some very, uh, shall we say, earthy humor. But it's also something that I, I predict very soon, if, if it isn't already on some ban list, is going to be unavailable. Try to find a copy of Walt Disney's Song of the South. Remember Uncle Remus? Zippity-doo-dah. Yeah, you can't find it. It's disappeared down the memory hole. And I suspect that Blazing Saddles will be the same 
for the same reason, because it was brilliant parody of racism, which means the N-word flew around a lot. I guess Richard Pryor was one of the the people who helped Mel Brooks write that movie, and they used the N-word with abandon, but they used it to great effect to lampoon racist ideals, to lampoon racist attitudes, and it worked, and it is truly one of the funniest movies ever made. So here's my point. The newly woke among us are sucking the fun out of every bit of our lives. They're sucking the independence out of our lives, too. I was happy to see that Jeff Minnick had written an article about fighting back against the killjoys. And he starts with a 1986 quote from Ronald Reagan. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Now, that was 35 years ago. And Jeff Minnick says, I'd like to suggest a nine word update update i'm woke and i'm here to change the world (laughs) this is dead on now the woke folks suck the fun out of everything and jeff minnick says i'll detail this below but the good news is we don't have to take their treatment lying down it's time to fight back against the killjoys that destroy the good life we americans once worked for and encouraged every day and i'm going to do my best here die aufgewachten lut He says, my apologies for, uh, if I've butchered German for woke folks, spring to their computers and cell phones to report some new outrage, to demonize often innocent people, and to announce they know what is best for the rest of us, and they're going to see we get it good and hard. Fly an American flag when you're a bigoted Trump supporter. Oppose the teaching of critical race theory in schools, and you're a hardcore member of the Ku Klux Klan. Speak out against gender-neutral locker rooms in a public school or against transgender athletes participating in women's sports, and you're transphobic. Jeff Minnick says the woke folks are as suspicious of joy as one of Stalin's commissars. The arrival of a new baby is no time for festivity, but a moment of reckoning for overpopulation and planetary footprints. A wedding is less an occasion of delight than an outmoded delineation of male and female roles. We might call the woke folks Puritans, but... That would be an insult to the godly people who first acquired that name, drank beer, had lots of children, attended festivals, and sang songs and told stories. Now, he says, unfortunately, some of the woke folks wield a great deal of power. They control many of our universities, they run our big corporations, they work inside our government as politicians and bureaucrats, and the more energetic ones organize riots in our streets to protest injustices and push their causes. And like the Energizer Bunny... They work day and night to push their agenda. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, You cannot love a thing without wanting to fight for it. So how can we fight against the woke folk and the things we love? How can we fight for the things we love? The flag, baby showers, weddings, traditional education, First Amendment rights, and more. Well, he says we can protest, of course, as did people at Loudoun County, Virginia's school board meeting, They stood up and spoke out against gender-neutral bathrooms and critical race theory. He says we can all vote, write letters to our politicians, boycott the products of woke corporations, avoid woke news sites, and in general, rely on our common sense rather than on woke theories. Oh, and he says we can also have some fun. In fact, he says let's try whooping it up whenever the occasion presents itself. Months of masks and social distancing have left many Americans grim about the mouth. And wokesters have only added to our pain and misery. So he says, let's make laughter our antidote to their poison and joy in living our sunshine against their darkness and clouds. 
Independence Day, for example, is just around the corner. Jeff Minnick says, let's decorate our homes with American flags and red, white, and blue bunting. Let's light off some fireworks and sing the Star-Spangled Banner and God Bless America at our backyard barbecues. Let's take pride and delight in the fact that we still live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And he says, let's pay attention when we see joy in others. This past week, he says, I was driving past the courthouse when a young man and woman came outside. The guy was waving a piece of paper in triumph, and then he scooped the girl into his arms and carried her off down the street. Was that their wedding license he had in hand? He says, I have no idea. But that sight bought me, brought me a grin that wouldn't quit. H.L. Mencken famously defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Now, Jeff Minnick says, as I said earlier, that's an undeserved slap in the face to the original Puritans, but it definitely fits the tight-lipped, flinty-eyed, woke folks to a T. And we don't have to allow them to spoil our own happiness. So he says, this summer, let's make a concerted effort to have some fun wherever we can find it. I think this is actually one of the better suggestions of how to fight back against woke culture and all that control, all that that dour, sour-faced control that seems to be emanating from it. And it's not a matter of, well, we got to go find some woke folks so we can go have fun in front of them and we'll show them we're just going to wave our fun in their faces. Come on. Pride Month ended yesterday, okay? It's done. How about instead, just live your life. You've heard the saying, you know, the best revenge is a life well lived or success is the best revenge, things like that. I'm just saying, you know, if you are living your life, if you are finding joy in the things that bring you joy and most importantly, not worrying about whether or not you have the approval of the politically correct commissars to enjoy this or joy, enjoy that. Your actions will speak louder than any words. You're still sending a message. Just the fact if you're walking down the street in confidence with a happy smile on your face. You're not doing it to prove a political point, but nonetheless, your example is still showing people this person has found happiness. And I think whatever we can do to just manifest that happiness, it doesn't have to be, you know, for the sake of owning the libs. Just show people that it's possible to live a happy life, that it's possible to be uh, joyful in your circumstances. Don't be afraid to laugh. And yeah, I'll admit, look, you might attract the attention of one of the new woke scolds who wants to step up and rain on your parade. You don't have to engage them. You don't have to justify yourself to them. You don't need their approval. They're not going to give it anyway. They're not going to do anything that would lessen their desire for control over you which means, you know, their disapproval is the mechanism by which they control others. But instead of looking for the negative, instead of, uh, you know, countering the negative consciously, we've got to fight the negative everywhere we go. What if instead we just focus on those things that make us happy, focus on the things that bring us joy, and stop worrying about what other people think? Yes, even the flinty-eyed, tight-lipped, woke folks. They can go their way. I'm going to go my way. I don't know why, but this attitude brings me more peace than the thought of let's go fight them in the streets. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I seem to be spending a lot of time today focusing on, you know, what's being taught in schools and, you know, sending your kids off to school. Are they going to be indoctrinated with hardcore leftist dogma? I don't think it's true, by the way, in every school. I, I, I have to say this in part because my wife is a public school teacher, and I know that uh, she is she is not one of the people out there trying her best to, you know, mold the new vanguard of the, the young revolutionaries. Some people are. She's not. Most of her co-workers, I believe, are not interested in that kind of an undertaking. But this is a legit concern in government-run schools. What if they're teaching our kids, you know, to, to hate America? What if they're teaching them, you know, to be dependent on government at every turn? Well, fortunately, there is an elegant and workable solution that unfortunately very few people have seriously considered. That solution is to separate school and state. Nobody explains this better than Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. And here's how he puts it. He says, for the life of me, I just cannot understand why so many Americans favor public, in other words, government schooling. Everyone knows that government produces the worst of everything and that the free market produces the best of everything. So why leave something as important as the education of one's child in the hands of the government? And it's not just a matter of whether public school teachers and administrators are dedicated, competent, and passionate about their work. He says it's about a bad system. When you have a bad system and good teachers, the bad system is ultimately going to win out. Now, Hornberger says it's impossible to measure the damage that's done to children's minds in public schooling. Every child from birth to six years of age has an instinctive desire to learn. Children have a natural awe of the universe, looking around wide-eyed and absorbing everything they see or hear. But that comes to a halt when children enter the public schooling system. And that's because the system slowly but surely smashes it out of them. A natural desire to learn is replaced by a mindset of regimentation, obedience to orders and commands, and deference to authority. By the time children graduate high school, they hate school and can't wait to get out. In fact, he says, the state's education system is really army light. It's a system based on conscription in that parents are forced to submit their children to it. Sure, some people can afford private schools, but oftentimes such schools are simply a privatized version of public schooling, especially since they have to maintain a state license to stay in existence. Homeschooling is an option for some parents, but even they oftentimes have to get their teaching approved by state officials. Most parents default to the public school system. Now, some children manifest a natural revulsion against the system. State officials diagnose them with attention deficit disorder and prescribe drugs, unfortunately characterized by the deference to authority mindset that was inculcated in them by their public schools. Many parents just go along with this. And the child becomes a drugged automaton who gradually gets his mind straight. Jacob Hornberger asks, how can parents do this to their children? He says, I find it totally befuddling. It's got to be that they just don't realize what is happening. That's because they themselves are products of the system. 
None of this should surprise anyone, he says. Public schooling is one gigantic socialist system, and everyone knows the type of shoddy products and services that socialism produces. Like other socialist systems, the state centrally plans the education of hundreds, thousands, or millions of people. And I like his point here. This is, this is how you know you're talking socialism. Central planning is a core feature of socialism. It produces what Ludwig von Mises called planned chaos. What better term to describe public schooling? The textbooks, curriculum, and class schedule all are selected by government. The government determines when the bells are going to ring, signaling that it's now time to change classes. Woe to the student who fails to comply. Funding of public schooling is through the coercive apparatus of taxation. How good can a system be when people have to be forced to fund it? <laughs> that's, that's actually one of the more loaded questions I've heard, but I, I agree. Wow, this idea is so good, we need to make it the law that you send your kids here and force you to pay for it. Because that's how good an idea that it is. <laughs> All right, so let's bring this home. What happens when you separate state and school? Well, Jacob Hornberger reminds us, genuine education is a seeking process. People become passionate about something and they devote their efforts to learning about it. In the process, they become exposed to other things. Public schooling, on the other hand, is cramming and memorization processes. Students quickly learn that what matters are grades, not learning. In a free market educational system, entrepreneurs would be competing against each other to provide the best educational vehicles for children. Parents would have an array of constantly improving educational products and services from which to choose. Parents would be free to treat each child as a unique individual and tailor his education accordingly. A free, independent thinking and educated society necessarily depends on the separation of school and state just as our ancestors separated church and state. And Jacob Hornberger says a free market educational system would be the best thing that could ever happen to children and everyone else. Now, I know for some people that's going to provoke some feelings of anxiety. Well, but what would we do? What would all the teachers do? What would all the administrators do? There's a lot of people employed within the public school system. And it's true. I don't know what the situation is, uh, you know, where I currently live. I, I would assume, though, in most places that I've lived, the single largest employer in any of those places is the county school district. It has more people and a bigger budget than any business there. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying all of those people who are working to educate, working to keep the IT systems running, the the custodians and the groundskeepers and everything. This isn't about, well, we just need to throw them out of work. When, when we talk about separation of school and state, even if this were to happen, let's just imagine, okay? I, I just wave a magic wand and boom. School and state are now separated. Government is no longer administering education. What happens to all the people who work within that system? You know, the fact is, they have skills, marketable skills. I don't think it would be hard at all for educators to find work in a free market education system. In fact, the best ones, 
wouldn't be clamoring for smaller classrooms. They'd be clamoring to get as many students as they possibly can with the understanding that, yeah, their method of teaching or their method of educating is is so good, people would be willing to pay, you know, for that higher quality. That's how competition works. This is one of the, the advantages of the free market. Well, what about those lesser ones? Yeah, well, I'm sure they could make a living too, but like a, a lesser business or a business that offers shoddy or um, less than high quality work, they're going to have to work harder to get customers because their competition is showing that there's a better way. Okay, what about the buildings? What about the facilities, Brian? We've spent millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions all across the country for these lovely schools and the administration buildings. Well, here's the good news. Those those facilities are built. There's no need to tear them down. They just need to change ownership. Transferred from the hands of the state into private hands, please. Are you suggesting that uh, that a private organization, a private um, school or a private company couldn't put them to good use? I don't know. I know it's, it seems pretty simplistic. Well, just, you know, there's just so many moving ends. But the bottom line is public education as it is, government-run education, is still a fairly recent development. Like within the last hundred years or so, it really became the ubiquitous standard. It's everywhere. But doesn't it make you wonder, as, as Jacob Hornberger points out, how good can a system be when people have to be forced to fund it or forced to send their children to it? I always thought it was very curious that, you know, when uh, state-run education, when public education became, you know, the norm, one of the first things that happened was anti-truancy laws were passed or compulsory education laws were passed, forcing parents to send their kids. Now, perhaps there would be some parents who'd say, well, not my kids. I'm going to keep them here and they're going to pick cotton or they're going to build, you know, whatever. You know, I'm just going to use their child labor to enrich myself. Perhaps there would be some people who would take that approach. I don't think that's indicative of most, though. And again, I come back to the idea. The state does it at great expense and at some significant cost to, you know, not only the property owners, but also to your freedoms. It's also easier for things to become politicized wherever the state is involved, as we're seeing now in the uh, critical race theory debate. Privatize it. If a school wants to teach that, let them. If they don't, don't. And then let the market decide which one of those is going to prosper and which one won't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. As a follower of Christ, you are created and called for greatness, now more than ever before. In his powerful sequel to the bestseller, Kingdom Man, Tony Evans' Kingdom Men Rising calls men to break free of apathetic faith, to take a stand, do more than just exist. You have been called to rise up and influence those around you. Discover how when you get Kingdom Men Rising and learn the art of intentional impact. New from Tony Evans, sponsored by The Urban Alternative. 
With a Democratic sweep officially in place, we are now at the mercy of tax and spend economics. Get ready for runaway national debt pushing the further devaluation of the dollar. So if you haven't invested in gold, now is the time to protect your savings. Birch Gold Group is the premier precious metals IRA company in America. With an A-plus BBB rating and thousands of satisfied customers, Birch Gold can help you move an eligible IRA or 401k into an IRA backed by gold. Go to birchgold.com radio for your free information kit. That's birchgold.com radio. Hi, this is Brian Hyde. Several months ago, I was introduced to a small Idaho technology company called Pure Light that's invented a new type of light bulb that's simply amazing. Their LED light bulbs make all other light bulbs obsolete. And I've actually had a chance to put them to work in my own home. Now, these are bulbs that eliminate odors, including pet odors and chemical smells. They eliminate mold. They eliminate deadly germs, even the tough-to-kill ones like MRSA or E. coli or salmonella. They eliminate smells. They eliminate deadly chemicals from the air, just like a $1,000 plus air purification machine would do, only for a whole lot less with these Pure Light LED bulbs. And you know what? They work as advertised, and they're already being used in thousands of homes, businesses, schools, assisted living facilities, medical facilities, government buildings, and more. Find out for yourself. Go to pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com, the next generation of light bulb. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. And yeah, I'm going to finish out this last segment with some thoughts on school choice. And I know that this makes some people uncomfortable, not because they necessarily feel like they have a dog in the fight. Well, you know, it's not like I work in public education or I'm worried about what my kids are being taught. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing because at some level it's, it's encouraging people to Consider some thoughts they may not have considered before, and that can be painful in and of itself. For instance, when most people weigh the pros and cons of school choice, what do they tend to focus on? Well, you know, can this, can the choices that I'm being offered, can they provide academic achievement that compares to what uh, the government school is currently able to provide? What will the test scores reveal about how these students are learning? And Vincent Geloso says, you know what, that's a short-sighted approach. He says, if you want to take the larger view of what's at stake for the student, he says, this is why school choice matters. Because when you take that larger approach, parents have the information to best make that call. Vincent Geloso says, with the pandemic-associated school closures in America, the level of parental discontent 
toward public schools has been growing. The response of teachers' unions was particularly irksome to parents who turned in great numbers, who turned rather in greater numbers, to homeschooling and other educational arrangements. Now, this has frequently been accompanied by rising levels of support for school choice, as witnessed by the bullet point of funding students, not systems. In some states, like West Virginia, the discontent has allowed a bevy of legislation curtailing the powers of teachers' unions. And the discontent has caused unions to push back in order to calm down criticisms. In addition to getting heavily involved in electoral politics, even at the city level, to promote union-friendly candidates, they've produced important talking points regarding the efficacy of school choice on securing better outcomes for children. And more often than not, the rebuttal speaks to issues of cognitive development and schooling outcomes. Proponents of school choice have only been too happy to accept a debate on those narrow grounds. Now, he says, to be sure, there's a wide body of empirical evidence on the effects of granting parents more choices in choosing the schools of their children. Many of these studies, he says, use top-of-the-line research methods to determine causality in their findings. The vast majority of the evidence suggests that there are important gains with regards to academic performance. But there are some discordant notes. Some research papers contest the presence of performance gains for children. However, this minority part of the literature does not argue that school choice made outcomes worse. In fact, he says, it tends to find near zero effects on outcomes. Thus, the worst case scenario is no effect, which is still a strong case for school choice as such programs appear to reduce total expenditures. On net, this worst case scenario implies that the same outcomes can be secured, albeit at lower costs. However, All of this constitutes an understatement of the benefits of allowing parents to choose schools for their children. Proponents of school choice have unwittingly selected to hinder the strength of their arguments. And this is the the gist of what uh, Vincent Geloso is getting at. He says, it's important to bear in mind that schooling is not only about academic achievements. There is much to it. Schooling serves to help children socialize and develop emotional control. These aspects of schooling are not of trivial importance. Just as cognitive development, they are associated with better outcomes in adulthood. In other words, higher levels of schooling persistence, higher levels of life satisfaction, higher levels of income, etc. Given the importance of these non-cognitive aspects of schooling, we should expect parents to care about a wider array of features than those captured by grades. So as a result, allowing families to choose may allow parents to pick the mix of school features most suited for their children accordingly. Among the factors that parents will weigh are those that speak to the overall health and safety of their children, which are related to socialization and the development of emotional control. In turn, this would impact the later life well-being in children, most notably, as is argued in a recent article in School Effectiveness and School Improvement by Angela Dills and Corey DeAngelis, it could allow improvements in the mental health outcomes of children. Now, this better matching of children to their schools may allow them to feel more at ease in their immediate environment. This would reduce distress and improve mental health. Second, school choice creates competitive pressures to entice families to enroll. As such, schools would attempt to compete with each other not only on academic outcomes, 
but also on non-academic factors such as the policing of bullies or psychological support offered to children. This would also improve mental health outcomes. Thus, mental health outcomes should improve in states that adopt school choice relative to states that do not. Now, how to measure these improvements? Well, in their article, Dills and DeAngelis proposed that suicide rates by adolescents constitute a viable measure of the, well, the mental well-being of pupils. If school choice programs improve mental well-being, they hypothesize that suicide rates ought to fall, all else being equal. Concentrating on the United States, they find that states that adopted broad-based voucher programs, which are designed to give parents more choices, experience declines in suicide rates. The effect they find represents a reduction of 10% in suicides among 15 to 19 years old. Now, unsatisfied by these results, Dills and DeAngelis also attempted to complement their results by using surveys of self-reported mental health outcomes. For example, these surveys asked respondents how many times during the past 12 months they were treated by mental health professionals. They also asked questions regarding eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia or other emotional problems that affected school attendance. The answers to these questions can be taken as complementary to the issue of adolescent suicides. However, their survey data is a bit different than their suicide rates data. They only have cross-sections for a few given years, and their variable of interest is whether a child was in a private school. That poses a problem of of interpretation for any results, as kids who go to private school could be going because they are more or less fragile to start with. So to address this problem, Dills and DeAngelis control for the initial level of a child's mental health at time of enrollment. Now, this method yields similar results to those as those for suicide rates. What they found was better mental outcomes where school choice exists. The likelihood of suffering from emotional problems is reduced by between 1.9 and 2.9 percentage points. Now, those are not trivial numbers, as the mean rate of mental disorder in their sample is 3% of the population. Huh. So while these may appear small, these effects complement those Dills and DeAngelis found with regards to adolescent suicides. Now, Vincent Geloso says these are important findings. Because in discussions of school choice, the focus is predominantly on academic achievements. As a result, the conversation is centered on whether or not the test scores will improve. However, it's always worthwhile to take account of the bigger picture. Schooling is not only about what government departments can easily measure. It's also often about these uh, harder-to-measure aspects of a child's well-being, which, by the way, parents are often best incentivized to understand and identify. So bearing that in mind only strengthens the case for allowing more room for school choice. As the pandemic crisis unwinds, lessons about how to best proceed in the future should include this finding of Dills and DeAngelis. Now, this is from Vincent Geloso, Senior Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Look, I don't know if you feel like, you know, you have a stake in that battle, but I am all for anything that increases a person's options and increases their choices. Bad choices paint us into a corner of increasingly small options. Wise choices offer us greater and more options. 
but we've been trained as as he points out most of us you know we're we're brought up and educated in a government run public school system so that's the only frame of reference with which we're comfortable and hopefully this doesn't come off as you know this rabid foaming at the mouth ah, you know all school all public schools are bad it's just questioning whether that one size fits all approach really is the panacea that we have grown up believing it was for so many years. See, I'm no longer convinced. And I say that as a parent who has participated in homeschooling, in private schooling, in a charter school, and has a wife who teaches in public school as well as children currently attending public school. You know, different strokes for different folks. Each one of them has their their strengths and their, uh, their weaknesses. If I'm arguing for anything here, it's just simply that you should have the freedom to do what is in the best interest of your child. And it's not subject to what the majority believes. It's not subject to what a number of voters think. It's what you, as a parent, have to decide. See, I believe your ultimate accountability is uh, with your, your partner there, God, the one who helped you create those kids. This is The Brian Hyde Show.